Then the Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words. So they sent their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to him. Teacher, they said, we know that you're genuine and that you teach God way, God's way as it really is. And we know that you're not swayed by people's opinions because you don't show favoritism. So tell us what you think. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Knowing their evil motives, Jesus replied, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used to pay the tax. So they brought him a denarian. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked. Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. When they heard this, they were astonished and they departed. This is the word of the Lord. A couple years ago, I um, got to go to, uh, to Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, has anyone been to Louisville? Yeah. Yeah. Downtown, there's this special place, and they have those historical marker plaques that we have uh, around our town, and, and uh, it really makes me pay attention to those a little more and, and try to follow up and learn what those are because in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, I encountered the, the Thomas Merton like epiphany plaque. Does anyone know this story? He's just, does anyone know Thomas Merton? Okay, baseline, we're starting somewhere, right? Um, Thomas Merton is this uh, contemplative um, monk writer uh, based out of uh, Gethsemane Abbey just outside of Louisville and, and so uh, the monks don't get out much. I always tell people I don't get out on Sundays much, um, but uh, them even less. But he he got to uh, to to go to the city um, just on a, a normal day, some, sometime in in March in 1958. Um, and uh, he's known uh, in the monastery as Father Louis. Um, he was walking around Louisville, uh, downtown Louisville's not that different than a place like Durham. It's an old southern town that is renewing in good ways and not so good ways. And in 1958, it was um, maybe even a quintessential southern town. Uh, Father Louis um, recounts this experience, this special moment that he had in downtown Louisville. He writes, in Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, this isn't like a special place, it says, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all of these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. He said, it was like waking from a dream of separateness of spurious self-isolation in a special world. So it's the sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As the sorrows and the stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. 
this story might kind of hit you in one of two ways today. Maybe a shining vision like this feels like really possible. I mean, we have some of the best light right now. Have you noticed that? It's, it's so wild. Glowing leaves and shining autumnal sun that makes ordinary places like 4th and Walnut or like Chapel Hill Road and Lakewood Avenue overwhelmingly shine with God's splendor. I like to imagine some of our Oak youth like have this vision right now. They're on a literal mountaintop. This is a mountaintop experience that they're having, right? They probably have no problem feeling that God is close or that things are bright. But maybe such like a, a positive epiphany, especially when it comes to a positive feeling about humanity, <laughs> feels impossible today. Impossible in a, a warring world in which we live in. Everyone seems like they're trying to fit on their white hats or their black hats so they can be good guys or bad guys and so we can all choose. This is a world of terrorism and occupation and collateral damage and hostages and what about shining sun people at that music festival or at that hospital? Lest we totally make Thomas Merton's vision into some fable like it didn't really happen, we have to remember that these things were also happening in March of 1958. Just a, just a week before uh, Father Louis had this vision, the United States, this is like ramping up to Cold War intensities, the United States accidentally dropped an atomic bomb outside of Florence, South Carolina. <laughs> Does anyone know about that? That is so crazy to me. God always works and reveals in the midst of a world of violence and fear and suffering. These, these visions don't happen in some separate place, some perfect timing. The gospel writers know this world really well also. They, they detail the good news of Jesus in that same world of all of those tensions and fear and violence and suffering. Maybe just with a little less technology to make that worse and faster. Um, quick delivery on killing, stealing, and destroying. So Matthew shares Jesus' parable story about a wedding feast. We, we read a version of it last week. Matthew's has like surprising teeth, though, that Luke's version doesn't have. He says a man is not dressed for the party, so he's thrown into the outer darkness. <laughs> Let the listener beware next time you get a wedding invitation. I, I don't really know what that subtext is is for Jesus, but apparently it caused the religious leaders that were listening to him to like kind of mobilize like white blood cells around an infection. Like something was amiss and it needed to be fixed. So they try to trap Jesus in this unwinnable political discourse. Jesus is surrounded by all these different kinds of people. Even his, his friend group, his followers, some of them were revolutionaries. We, we know that they had like nicknames that sound like wrestlers, but were probably more like terrorists, like the Sons of Thunder. Um, you know, Judas Iscariot, the Iscariot part is someone that carries around a sickle. 
like a blade. <laughs> so when asking a question about taxes, this isn't just like a little salon where they're smoking pipes and talking theoretically about the economy of their place. Towing the tax line for some of these guys would have been seen as selling out. It would have been dangerous. Surrounded also by religious folk from his own tradition, um, some of them have actually made some peace with this arrangement with Rome. If, if he said not giving Caesar was the way to go, that could also have been dangerous. Could have been subversive in a bad way. Not to mention these very taxes were being used to build and maintain an empire of stability that was predicated on like lopsided flourishing a big, deep disparity between haves and have-nots. So in the midst of this, any good Jew would be hoping for a change, a sign, a revelation, that the God of Israel, the God who brought Moses' people out of Egypt, free from Pharaoh, was still in charge, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, despite what Caesar was saying and doing, God was in charge. And while Jews were of mixed mind about the empire, hardly any of them supported Roman occupation, the, this regime of, of intimidation and terror. Then enter into our story the Herodians. We don't know much about them, but we think that they were a little more sympathetic to Rome than the normal religious types. But they were still primarily identifying with Jewish concerns. Jesus can hardly win here. I think of, we're in a tight spot, right? This is a great reminder to me these days when it feels like things are just entirely too complicated and sometimes learning more further complicates things and that there's no perfect answer and by supporting someone you might alienate or hurt someone else. These ethical dilemmas aren't new for people that stick close to Jesus. Jesus actually experiences and models and embodies it. So what does Jesus say and do? Well, maybe I, I watched a, a little too much college football yesterday, but, because I think, <laughs> I won't say anything. Um, I think Jesus kind of rips a tactic out of like a good old college coach's playbook, and he doesn't mention his rival by name. They, they say, what are you supposed to do? And he goes, who's on that coin? And he makes them say it. You know, this is in Florida, they say, that school down south, we don't say their name, you know. He says, knowing their evil motives, he says, why do you hypocrites test me? You show me the coin. Whose image and inscription is it? This coin looks something like this. This is uh, Caesar, the son of God, <laughs> the divine one. They want Jesus to say this, though. They don't want Jesus to, to repeat what they're saying. They want to get him on tape. They want to create the ultimate bulletin board material of trash talk about Caesar, and Jesus just won't dignify it. He makes them say it. He didn't bring this up in the first place. But he also doesn't shy away from what the answer is. The text says they were astonished by this. So Jesus, in a little bit of performance art, I wish I had coins in my pocket right now. I just 
don't carry cash. He teaches them a valuable lesson. It's a deeply practical lesson. And I, I think it's a lesson of difference. It's a lesson of the difference between a theology of paying, is what we'll call it, and a theology of praying. Here's what I, I mean by that. A theology of paying is predicated on this image. He, and he messes with this a little bit. This, this image of a, of a coin, that coin that has a picture of Caesar on it, this is an image that is powerful for the, the people that carry it around, even though it's flat. It's almost two-dimensional, but it holds power because their currency subtly says, I'm in charge. I control the money, which means I control bodies. If you want something, you have to go through me. If you step out, out of line, you'll quickly understand the limits of Pax Romana. But if you stay within the settled parameters, you can have a pretty decent go about it. Keep your head down, do the work, don't get too big for your britches, pay your taxes. This is a theology of paying. This has always been a theology of paying, a theology that works pretty well until it doesn't. It works for you if you have something to pay if you can conform your life to what these powers and principalities ask. This theology of paying doesn't like disturbance. It doesn't like to be questioned. In fact, when you start to ask questions, that feels like a threat, and threats must be cut down to size and punished and eliminated. Humor me, but this feels a lot like um, Top Gun's Iceman is a priest of this theology of paying saying your ego is writing checks that your body just can't cash, right? Jesus asks for a coin, maybe something he's not even really that facile in handling that much. After all, the, the theologian of paying in residence was Judas Iscariot, if we remember correctly. We see how that turned out. So he gets the coin and he flips it up in the air and it lands on heads he shows it to them and he says, this is your answer. The image of Caesar. Flat and lifeless, gaudy, and only worth as much as the metal that it's stamped on. And then Jesus' next lesson, by implication, is about a theology of praying. I like to think after he has that coin with the image on it, that the next move, he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And the next move is gestures broadly. We don't have the stage directions in there. And he says, give this piece of metal with Caesar's image imprinted on it back to Caesar. And he says, but give these images, looking around him at this diverse group of people, some of whom wished him ill and harm, give these images stamped with God's image on each and every one of them, give them back to God because they belong to God. Jesus is moving, and it's tricky, he's moving in this like mode of coercive and transactional and not enough to this mode of prophetic and priestly bearers of God's image. We jump cut back to the creation story that we know so well that we learned as kids. 
let there be, let there be, let there be. Let us make humans in our own image. God creates humanity from the dust in God's image. God created them, male and female, and they were good, very good. God creates them, creates us to be made in God's image. That doesn't just mean that we have some of the stuff of God. It doesn't just mean that we have some mere family resemblance, but it also means that like Jesus, the image of the invisible God, we each and we all stand somewhere in the middle of things. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, that you stand somewhere in the middle of things, between God and between creation, within creation, from God, with God, being remade for God in Christ by God's spirit. This is all very Trinitarian stuff. And the implications of this are massive. Father Louis was seeing this at that corner in Louisville, but uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this also. He, he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, that we work with that we marry, that we snub, that we exploit. Immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. And, and he draws the conclusion out, not that, we should, um, not that we should be afraid of all of that power, but that we should just play more and better together. I like to use, in talking about this, this uh, what we are and what we do as God's image bearers, I like to talk in our baptism class about this, and I use this this picture, this image. Um, I think it's right. Yeah, there it is. Cool. Um, imagine that, like, kind of tilted uh, quadrilateral uh, as a, a mirror, actually. Okay, and it always works best, especially when I do a kids' baptism class, to bring a mirror, show them themselves, and then slightly tilt it up, and that's a lot of what it means to be made in God's image. That we're standing here in the middle, reflecting God to this creation and reflecting creation to this creative God. This is, this is explosive and huge stuff, even as this actual picture isn't that exciting, right? Um, when we do this, it, it gives us these as I said, prophetic and priestly functions. Because what does a prophet do but stands in the midst of God's people, voicing God's words and God's desires to God's people, drawing them back to God? What, is a, what does a priest do but stands uh, amongst the people and brings their cares, brings their worries, brings their sin for atonement on behalf of God's people before God, standing in the middle. We're always doing this middle work as God's image bearers. Jesus did it perfectly. To bear God's image is not just a, a characteristic, it's, it's, a, it's a calling for us. It's a calling to bear witness, but also it's, it's a responsibility on behalf of God for creation. When we intercess for people, 
This is what prophets do. We stand among people on behalf of God. But we also have this responsibility the other way, on behalf of creation. This means, when I say creation, I'm, I mean human creatures, but also the whole of creation, non-human creatures too. That we, we gather creation's praise, that we act as priests, that we act in creative and obedient and restorative ways that give God honor. And some of that happens through lament too, when things aren't right, when things are broken. I think it was Henry Nouwen who once said, I've come to find that most of praying is just grieving. I've come to find that most of praying is grieving. I think kind of wraps up this uh, theology of praying, that you're, you're giving praise and you're bearing witness to praise. You're also lamenting your, your praying on behalf of and giving voice to brokenness. Do you see how different, how, how the huge difference between a theology of paying and a theology of praying? It's the difference between an, an idol and an icon. Uh, my, those aren't really words or categories that we use a lot, an idol or an icon. You, you look at an idol, and an idol just like absorbs your adoration. Even my kids get this when we watch like American Idol. Like, that is, an idol is for looking at and, and says to you, look at me. It points to itself and it becomes self-serving and self-protective. This, the idol is the main feature of a theology of paying. But an icon, an icon, you look through an icon. An icon focuses, an icon amplifies adoration to the appropriate source, namely God. So we, we must resist idolatries. These are zero-sum, they're coercive, they're reductionistic, they're instrumental, they're for or against. It's a theology of paying is, also an, is always an act of transaction. Again, it works good if you can pay it. If it doesn't, you're shut out. So many of us have this distorted view of that being how God works for us. Um, that, that God is just kind of standing there saying, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> but then we instead could be renewed in this iconic vision in imagination. I think something like Thomas Merton's vision, C.S. Lewis's vision. We sang earlier, I am with you, is, a, is an iconic spirituality. That God is with us regardless. That God is for us no matter what we're experiencing. Whether we can appropriately recognize and praise and give voice to that praise and, and join in the praise of creation or, or not, <laughs> or whether we can... Our, um, patient enough and brave enough to join our hearts and our spirits with those who are grieving, those who are experiencing massive pain and suffering, or if we've buffered ourselves from that, God is still with us, drawing us to um, this real and true life, this ministry of praying, of praise and lament. 
So returning to Fourth and Walnut or Chapel Hill Road and Lakewood Avenue, we ask for and we work towards having a vision to see God shining around us through people in a place. It means we have to open ourselves up to this deep and hard ministry of praying. That means standing with people, talking to God, listening to God, talking to people, standing right in the middle of that. It means that we attend to all of the praise of creation, which is too much for us to bear in a good way even if it's often hidden or obscured, and we bear some of the burdens also of grief and lament, even if they're not, even if we didn't do it, even if we didn't make it, even if we're not, we don't feel responsible for it, we, we move into the space of empathy and presence, knowing that Jesus bears these things perfectly, wholly, and is present amidst the deepest loneliness and suffering and despair. So friends, let's give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Small, cold, impersonal, scarce. Let's give to God what belongs to God. Namely, our whole selves. As living sacrifices, not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let us be ministers of this theology of praying. Will you all pray with me? <laughs> Lord Jesus, continue to open us up to your challenge in this world. It's a challenge to uh, move beyond um, the limited expectations and limited vision that we normally walk around with. Help us um, tap into your grace in this world. Transfigure in our hearts um, those things that are too familiar to see this way and the people that are too familiar to see this way and open us up to your spirit's surprising work in this world. Lord, uh, till in us, um, churn us up so that we, um, in a moment, can participate even now in this ministry of praying, these prayers of the people of praise and of intercession. We pray all this in Jesus' name.